There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town and branch microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight, retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? I'm excited. You know, it's funny. Whenever we have another copper on, you know, we're all coppers, uh, de- detective. Uh, we all speak the same language. This is going to be like being in a gin mill, just telling war stories, you know. Well, we happen to have uh, a great guest, Ed Conlon, who is actually, I have his book right here. I actually bought this book years ago, you know, and I, uh, Blue Blood. And, you know, a lot of people mistake that they hear Blue Blood. They're like, oh, the TV show Blue Bloods. He he had this title before they did. I don't know how they stole his damn title. They just added an S on to it. You know, ridiculous. And, and you you had a best selling novel too, right? Yeah, I did the next the next one. That's that's a, a memoir, of family history in the police department. My my father was a cop for a short time, an FBI agent for a long time. His brother was on for thirty three years, and my great grandfather actually started in nineteen oh four. So that's a sort of mix of wow, you know, my my uh, patrol days and detective days with family history and you know police history. You know, is that history now of the NYPD a thing of the past? You don't see it as much now. And I think that with the changing, um, you know, uh, demographics of the city, uh, I, I it seems to me that there's more Dominican cops on the job than I've ever seen in the history of the, which is fine. I mean, it's a more diverse job. The Irish used to own the NYPD, and I don't think you could say that anymore. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I thought you were going in a different direction with that. You know, it um, when people, you know, one of the one of the characters in the book and a guy who was a friend of mine was was Sonny Grasso. You know, one of one of the cops from the French Connection, and it was kind of struck me that, you know, really from the beginning of the department all the way through, um, I don't know, the 70s or the 80s, there were celebrity detectives. You know, people knew what Sonny did or what he was up to. I mean, I think the last one, the last one, arguably, uh, you know, who's good famous is, uh, you know, the guy who's in in my podcast, you know, Frank Bowles. He was he was a really, you know, he was on 60 Minutes. He was on, uh, you know, Profile in the New York Times. But cops don't get famous for good things. I mean, cops and detectives. Yeah, right. Used to. Well, the most famous cop in our era is probably Michael Dowd, you know, yeah. and for all the wrong reasons, you know, yeah. uh, he he's been making the rounds of podcasts and, you know, people always say, Oh, why don't you have doubt? I, I said, I wouldn't sit in the same room as doubt, you know, yeah. never, never have him on my podcast, you know, and, and, and he gets great numbers, but that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't want to, I know we were, we were on the job when dad was doing his treachery and his dishonest police work. And we know how hard a dishonest cop makes it for the rest of the honest cops that are on the police department. He makes everyone's job 10 times harder. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Bill, you have anything to say to that, Phil? 
<laughs> oh, I got a few things to say. Real quick, Billy, you brought up that the, uh, a lot of the Hispanics on the police department, Dominican. I heard a statistic the other day that uh, the highest number of uh, police officers born out of the country happens to be uh, from the Dominican Republic and the NYPD. So you're right about that. Uh, the job has definitely shifted as far as diversity goes. Uh, you know, we're in a, uh, a different world. And I don't know if we're going to see uh, families like Ed's here. Like I had an uncle who was a, a police officer and he inspired me to become a police officer. But I don't know if that's going to, uh, you know, continue on going forward. It doesn't seem like the, uh, you know, the hierarchy, uh, the proudness of it. Most people, uh, young kids today, uh, they tell a parent that they want to be a police officer, specifically in, in New York, in the NYPD. And, uh, you know, the, the family will run around like their hair is on fire because they don't want them to get involved in uh, policing. And in this day and age, policing is just under such a, um, I don't even know how to put it. It's just, uh, it's under a microscope in one respect. And it's uh, looked upon as, uh, you know, very, very uh, dark in another respect, you know. So uh, I just, I appreciate uh, being in the presence of uh, cop families, you know. Uh, Bill, you had a, a family of. Uh, my dad was on the job and my younger brother was on the job. My brother, younger brother, though, left the job after like three or four years. He He, he didn't like it and he left, which, you know. That's okay. I, th right? I think he wishes that he had stayed on, uh, well, for the pension reasons, but not for the reasons that he left, you know. But Ed, you know, it's 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 so you know, it's the whole Irish story too. The Irish coming from Ireland to this country and they were preached to get a civil service job, lad. Lad, get a civil service job, <laughs> collect that pension, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's crazy. Were you were you preached? Although, wait a minute, you you went to Harvard, right? I I did, yeah. So you went to Harvard. So that's a real unusual path. Like when I watched the TV show Blue Bloods, and the one kid is a sergeant, he has a law degree from Harvard. I'm like, I want to go. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you think a guy with a Harvard law degree? No, but do you think a guy with a Harvard law degree is going to work on the NYPD? But seventy thousand a year, whatever the hell were they getting? You know. Well, I, I, it was a lot less than that when I started. I can tell yeah. you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, tell my mom. My father had died by that at that point, but I didn't tell my mom until it was already done. I knew it wouldn't be. Uh, I didn't tell most people. You know, a lot of people who I knew because I didn't know if you you don't know if it's right for you until you've really kind of done it. Uh, and 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 I knew that the uh, reaction would not be. Uh, favorable from all quarters you know when i came on a job i was older i was 28 years old i had worked as a sales rep i had worked for years as a bartender actually at pete's tavern on 18th street in Irving place so i wanted to get out of the life of bartending and all of that and i immediately loved the job i loved it i came on in 1985 and i guess that was just either pre-crack or just almost exactly at the time yeah that's when crack came out at 85 and yeah. i mean i just i just i just loved i loved everything about the job i didn't love the paychecks i got every two weeks but i liked the work i really did like the work i love the work yeah i you know i walked a bead i really liked it it was exciting you know and, and one of the big shocks was you know i was in the south bronx and in, in the four two um you know how much people really I really like cops there. Most of them are really happy to see you. It was uh, not what you've been uh, uh, led to expect. Yeah, you know, all of this, I, I did a show just recently uh, on, uh, you know, the um, the national uh, hatred for the police and the, um, 
you know, the, the, the whole defund the police movement and, you know, like I always like to know what, what do these idiots do on the weekends? What are these morons? What, what is it that they do with their life that they come out and, and hold signs above their head to fund the police? Like what, 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 what did they do? Did they play baseball and football when they grew up or what, what were they doing with their life? You know, it really amazes me. Cause I think in the last couple of years, the uh, politics and politicians have destroyed law enforcement across this nation. I really believe that, you know. Well, well crazy people like the, the the ones holding that sign, you know, we've always had them. It's it's just we didn't have a majority in the legislature that agreed with them. That's that's the important thing. For, that's for a good them. point. Uh, that's a good point because yeah, it seems scary. like city council has uh, been taken over by these uh, leftists, so to speak, you know. Yeah, yeah. And well, it, you you, you can't believe some of the things that they've done, uh, i.e. diaphragm law, um, bail reform, or getting rid of qualified immunity. Why don't you just remove the testicles from every cop on the uh, on the you know, every police department in this country? You know, it, it's unbelievable. And then they're like when cops get attacked and people disparage police, they're like, oh, we had nothing to do with it. You had everything to do with it, you know. Right. And why aren't more why aren't more people signing up for this job? You know, There's and why a, are people quitting the job without even reaching twenty years, without getting yeah. their pension? Because they can't. It's they've made it so difficult to be a police officer, and not just in New York City, across this whole nation. Yeah, nationally the numbers are pretty terrible. I mean, they're they're we're down from. I mean, there's. I don't want to commit to a hard number here, but it's something like. I think we used to have nearly 800,000 sworn officers in this country, and I think it's maybe 685 now. That's a big, it's a big difference because the country's still getting bigger and we have fewer and fewer cops. Yeah, it, it's actually, it's actually scary because not only, uh, uh, you know, we're retired from the job now, but we're citizens of this country and we expect to be protected to a certain level, you know, to have police service and to, be able to be safe in our homes and safe in New York City. And, you know, with these woke ideas like allowing homeless people to live in the subways and on the street, we've seen the results of that. But yet they're not, the, the politicians aren't shooken, like, shake that politician. Like, do something about this. How many people have to be pushed in front of trains? How many people have to be stabbed on the subway? How many, you know, how many atrocities have to happen before you politicians do something about it? Billy, it's just amazing how in certain areas of the country, and I'm glad Ed brought that uh, point up about how uh, the numbers are way down across the country because there's areas in the country where you'll call 911 and police will not respond to what they call low-level uh, criminal activity. And it could be, you know, anything is, uh, uh, you know, someone's uh, trying to get into your house. It's a trespass. Until they get in, they're not going to respond until maybe they're inside the house. And even then, uh, they may respond with a delay. So there is definitely a crisis going on in this country with regard to criminal activity, crime. And I think the uh, the recruitment of police officers and allowing police officers to do their job uh, is one of the other crises that, that uh, just throughout the whole country. It's just a, uh, it was like it spread like wildfire after George Floyd and then defund the police. Uh, anybody that wanted to stand up for a cop was looked down upon. And uh, unfortunately, we're seeing the results of those uh, those uh, behaviors. 
Well, for you know, in in New York, the funny thing is, you know, with with the pandemic and George Floyd, that that really accelerated things. But you know, the legislature passed the criminal justice reforms in in 2019. So we were we were we they were already knocking holes in the boat before yeah. it happened. We went up 20 percent in all overall crime from January 1st, 2020, through the end of February. That never happened before. Never in the first two months of this, as long as we've been keeping close watch on the stats, that's never happened before. So we were going in, a, in the wrong direction pretty fast, even before uh, the other stuff. I mean, in, in the first round of, of uh, bail reform, you know what? You know what crime you a judge couldn't set bail for? Bail jumping. <laughs> so they clearly thought they could. You couldn't set bail for somebody charged with escape. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, they just got the hotel room somewhere and obviously the activists were invited, but, but no cops and no, no prosecutors. Uh, you know, I, you know, Jimmy O'Neill was a PC then and he was just astonished, you know. You know, what's amazing to me and some of these woke philosophies, one of them that just drives me out of my mind are these violence interrupters. It's almost like the emperor has no clothes on but everyone's like, look at the beautiful clothes the emperor's wearing, you know? No, it's all we know what it is. It's you trying to give money to guys who are unemployable and pretending that they're doing something about crime. It's whose idea was that? Show me statistics that it works. And if you show them to me, I know you made them up because it's bullshit. Yeah, you know? there's, there's not a lot of, you know, some people think there's some interesting things going on with it. I mean, I, I don't think there's a lot of good data. But, I mean, just look at it in, in one way. People, you know, the idiots say, well, we can replace the police with them. You know, violence interrupters, even if you accept all the premises, which, you know, time will tell, they're all about the next homicide. You know, cops have today's homicide and yesterday's and all the ones that have happened. It'd be nice if, you know, future homicides, there's fewer of them, but it doesn't, but we still got a job to do. And... They, you know, they're not there to help us, you know, by design. They're not cooperating with us. And, um, you know, th 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 they're different missions. And, you know, ours has to go first because, you know, people are getting killed. People are getting shot. And, we, you know, we, we got to hold people to account for that. Absolutely. Miss um, Jean, thank you for the 999 Super Chat. After 36 years, I had to finally arm myself with a CCW. I never thought I would see this day. Yeah, it's here. Yeah, and they're trying to take your guns away, too, which is another amazing thing that these geniuses are trying to do. You know, it's like when you see some of these, um, the, you know, I said I mentioned violence interrupters. We mentioned bail reform. We mentioned uh, qualified immunity, getting rid of that. We mentioned the diaphragm law. They can't get any stupider in New York. They cannot get any. I guess they can. But uh, it, it seems to me, you know, when you there was a great video of two cops from the two five. Uh, trying to arrest the guy, and they had him lying on the ground, and you could see they could wouldn't put their knee in the guy's back. So he figures, hey, I'm just gonna get up and run. He's got a gun on him, by the way. Yeah. So he gets up and runs, and they chase him, and you know they put over a 13, and they 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 get him back on the ground, and now now the cavalry comes, and they there's enough people there to hold him down. But he had a gun that could have ended so so much worse than it did. And you could see these cops were just trying to comply with that stupid diaphragm law, you know? And it's it's it really 
hurts me to see that they're risking their lives for the people of this city. And you got these morons in the city council that vote for this. And like, you know, maybe it sounds unprofessional to me as a podcast host to call politicians morons, but the people in the city council are absolute morons. You know, they really are. And I'll take the hit. Don't hold back being... now, Bill. Don't hold back. Yeah, no, well, they are they're total morons. You know, I, I don't want to I don't want to spend the whole show because I know Ed didn't come on the show to talk about uh, you know, crime in New York City. Uh and I just want to mention the, the book, the book is a is great. I want to also, you know, plug it too. I know it's it's been out there for years. And uh, yeah, I don't want people to to confuse it with Blue Bloods, the TV show. It's Blue Blood, it's your personal memoir of uh, the Irish family in the New York City Police Department. But I remember uh, years ago, I was in Marty O's. You remember that bar, right? And you were in the bar and I was with some other detectives. At the time, I think it was in the 2-3. And the guys were giving you a hard time. Like, you're a rookie. Why are you writing a book? And I was like, he didn't do anything. And they're busting his balls just because he wrote a book, you know? And they're like, you don't have a right to write a book because you only have like three years or four years or whatever you have. Do you remember that? Uh, there's a. Do you know Billy Dunn? Yes, yes, good friends with Billy Dunn. I, I, I was, I was, uh, I, I saw him the other night. He went to my high school, so we were at a reunion the other night, and uh, we were telling a story about that. But I don't think I'll go into it on the air. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was the rip sergeant. His life story, and and I declined, and he was a little upset about it. Uh, oh, someone wanted you to to yeah. go write their life story. Very generously offered. To allow me to write their life story. Oh God! <laughs> How dare you decline? I know, I know. You know, everyone that's on the job always has a much higher inflated opinion of themselves as a police officer slash detective, whatever they were, than other people do. You know, yeah. they'll be like, "I should, there should be a bust of me in the two three squad." You know, like. Uh, <laughs> but Billy Dunn happens to be a great guy. I, I was the rip sergeant there for years, and he. He was a rookie coming up as a white shield when I had the rip there. And then, uh, but just super, super anal guy, super smart guy. He's such a, I mean, he's, he's one of those guys that, you know, he has the same thing for dinner every night. Let me get chi uh, chickies, you know, crispy chicken and burn the French fries. You know, <laughs> he gives instructions over the phone. I love to hear it. You know, he's but, got 30 uh, years on. I think he's going to age out. So, uh, you know, yeah, I think he will too, but great guy. So what your new project obviously is it's a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a and podcast. You know, so I mean I, I retired from the 404 squad um <clears throat> in 2011, and then I came back in, in 2018. Uh it was a great job they made up for me. I was kind of like the writer in residence. And so I you know, I'd help out with op-eds or you know, speeches or that kind of thing. Uh, but I was writing basically magazine pieces that went up on the website. I mean, I wrote about Foster and Laurie. I wrote a piece about Herman Bell when he was getting paroled. You know, some uh, you know beat cop stuff. Uh, um, uh, and and you know, nobody's going to the police website to read you know quality nonfiction. You know, they're there for traffic updates and civil service stuff. So. Um, I guess it's, it's going on uh, three years ago. Um, we decided to try podcasting. Everybody's doing podcasting, as you know. Podcasting is a big thing. And so I did this uh, story on, on Baby Hope. You know, I didn't know how to write this stuff, you know. Um, but I, you know, I, I originally wanted to do uh, Aton Pates. Uh, 
because one of my own partners got the confession in that case. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really probably the most important homicide of the, the, the 20th century. You know, that changed. Oh, just, just tell everyone, cause not everyone that listens to our show is from the New York city area. Okay. Aton well, Pates, tell them who, they, who, who he was. Aton Pates was a six year old boy who lived in Soho, Manhattan. And, uh, on the last day of school, uh, he, his mother finally pestered. He finally, she finally let him walk, you know, a block and a half to the bus stop, and he was never seen again. And that kid was the first kid whose face was on a milk carton. It, um, you know, it, and from 1979 till about, well, I think it was 2012, they made the collar. It, it was the, uh, it, it was. Uh, it, an epic marathon case I mean, because this one guy who was a pedophile who was had a connection to the family he knew the babysitter um was almost playing with investigators saying you know oh i think i saw that kid in washington square park and we hung out for a while but then i got so you know as if the six-year-old kid on his first day walking to the bus would go hang out in the park right. uh, such a bad guy that he was a very compelling subject and they just didn't get close enough and then over um you know the the, the actual perp uh, uh uh peter hernandez i think his name is um had you know told different people in his family and his you know had some kind of born again phases in his life he he would talk about it He'd mentioned, you know, I don't know what kind of specificity he, he went into, whether he said, you know, I killed that kid, that famous kid, or I hurt a kid or whatever. But uh, it, it, there, I like the story also because there was a, a wrong turn in the investigation that really broke the case up. So everybody thought it was this Ramos guy who was the pedophile uh, who was in jail and for molesting other kids in Pennsylvania. Um, and then there was a theory about some super on the block um, I recently, you know, somebody said, you know, right after that happened, he put in a new concrete basement. I said, okay, so the FBI dug up the basement. You know, nothing was there, but that put the case back in the news for a week. And this other guy, Hernandez's family, like, you know what? Our brother, let's 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 see if it really happened the way it's happened. And then Jose Morales, one of my old partners, and a couple of other guys, uh, you know, they went out and they got, you know, a confession. And most people, the DA's office, I think, was was initially resistant uh, because all you had was a confession. You still didn't have the body. Right. People expect forensics. It's nice to have forensics. Uh, but this guy worked in the bodega on the corner of West Broadway and Prince Street, and he didn't go to work the next day. So he's there on that, you know, 200 yards where we knew this kid went. Um, and it was just amazing how it was put together. And again, like I said, you know, it's probably the most, you know, you can talk about Emmett Till and, and different other civil rights cases, which were important. Um, but this changed childhood and parenting in America. But the case was still being appealed at that time. And, um, you know, you just don't want to, get close to anything that that took so much work to put together. Oh, by the way, there were, you know, so there, the, 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 the you know, Manhattan DA was 
initially resistant, I think, but they, they were sold when they, they looked at confession. Anybody who who listens to that confession video, I remember talking to two different Manhattan DAs at the time, and one said, this is a loser of a case. The guy's half crazy, he, you know, did drugs, did that, and they just, you know, it's just not enough. And the other one said, I saw it, he did it, you know? And, and people who saw it had the same reaction, certainly in the office. And then there was there were two trials, 11 to one for conviction in the first one, uh, and then uh, and then uh, and those jury members were so invested in it, they came back to the second trial, and he was convicted the second time around. So it's it's a thriller. It's important. It's just- you know, Ed. Some of the things that uh, people that aren't in policing and people that uh, even just follow true crime stuff is that they don't understand, nor does the whole jury pool understand. Is some of the people that we deal with, they're nuts. And yeah. but yet they they're not so nuts that they don't know what they're doing, you know, and that's we have to be able to speak to these people. Yeah. And I'm sure that the guy that who killed Aton Pates uh, was half a nut too. But guess what? Half a nuts commit crimes and heinous crimes, and detectives have to be able to navigate that horrible pool of humanity and get confessions. And that's what NYPD detectives are so skilled at. Yeah. So that's a lot of, a lot of background on a story I didn't write, <laughs> but <laughs> so the story I did write was baby hope, which is another great case. Another complicated case body of a four-year-old girl found in a cooler on the side of the West side highway in 1990. And that was 22 years before it broke. Um, and uh, it's a cool story. Joe Resnick followed it from when he was squad commander in the three, four, right until whatever his rank was in, in 2012. I think he was uh, uh, deputy commissioner. Deputy no, commissioner. well, he, I think in 2012 he was probably a two-star chief, and then yeah, yeah, but he, he eventually wound up as the the uh, commissioner of internal affairs, a civilian right. rank when he aged but, out. Yeah, but he took those the case file with them from every command there, uh, and it's you know we were lucky he had. Uh, 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 you know, original three four guys. A guy named Jerry Giorgio. Jerry Giorgio, a, yeah. There was like, a lot. Of, I told yeah. you about famous detectives. Jerry Giorgio was that. There weren't a lot of people like that. Um, but, you know, he also stayed with the case through his career and stayed with it, you know, when he only did whatever, 40 years in the police department and did his another 15 with the Manhattan DAs. He's, right, right. And even though Jerry wasn't alive, he had done enough TV that, you know, you could have his voice and fit him in the story. Uh, but it was it was just a great way to it, it's a really good way of, of telling stories when you have people, you know, who were there, who were involved, other detectives. I mean, the guy I found that I had the construction worker who found the body, you know, who was still ripped up by it. You know, it, it's like he it happened yesterday. And. Right. You know, so like if somebody we might get, you know, uh, you know, I think the most we had uh, for for one of my pieces on the website was like ten thousand, uh, you know, downloads, and we got uh, I think close to half a million uh, for people who listen to that story. Yeah. So it's, it's just you know, and police trying to tell police stories, you know, for the public. You no, know, and one of the things that we found out from doing this podcast is we don't get a huge support from cops. We, well, our biggest audience are women between the ages of 45 and 65. That's our biggest audience. And I can look at the analytics on YouTube. So I always like get pissed at cops. Like, why don't you guys subscribe? You know, 
It doesn't cost anything. It's free, yeah. but they're yeah. just lazy. They may be listening, but they don't. They subscribe. watch, but they don't. They don't give us the thumbs up or subscribe. Because yeah. yeah. I, I run into so many guys like, oh, I saw you on the podcast, you know, blah blah blah. But I'm like, did you describe uh, subscribe? Did you give us the thumbs up? And they're like, oh, I'm gonna, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With short arms and deep pockets, but it, 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 this, it, this doesn't it doesn't cost them anything, so all they have to do is subscribe. You know? Well, I mean, true crime. I mean, this is you know broadly speaking, true crime stuff, and that's a very female audience. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to get to what you're doing right now, and uh, yeah, I, mean, I I have the trailer. I'm going to play the trailer. Uh, do you have, you want to say something before I play the trailer? No, no, just play it. I'll tell. I'll tell. I'll, 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 I'll talk after. Okay. In 1973, the New York City Police Department created a hostage negotiation team. Confirmed the hostage incident at 405 East 105 Street, apartment 5H. You copy. 1073 It was the first of its kind in the world. We don't want to teach you to be a John Wayne. We want to teach you to be a devout coward. All human behavior is purposeful, and all human behavior is understandable. Their motto is, talk to me. I'd like to think I was a better listener than a talker. They're the ones that have the information that I want. Let them tell you the story, and you go from there. He has to be able to read people. Okay? He has to be able to try and find out what he's really up against. He's not up against the gun. He's not up against the knife. He's up against the man's mind. These are their stories. He burst in, grabbed the baby, ran to the rooftop. He's going to throw the baby, and he's going to jump. I was completely broke, man. I walked in here with two cents in my pocket. When I get broke, I do crazy things. We gotta make sure that everybody knows what's going on so that nobody gets hurt. You understand? When it gets dark, I'm gonna start shooting. But I'm gonna make sure that everyone I leave on here is gonna be dead. Do you understand that? We don't put an end on it as long as it takes to bring them out safely. That's the main thing, so that nobody gets hurt. When you're defusing a human bomb, it's the same as when you're taking apart a real bomb. If you skip a step, you're going to get caught. It's going to blow up right in your face. I'm Edward Conlon, a director of communications at the NYPD. I'm also a former detective and a New York Times best-selling author. Talk to Me tells the high-stakes true story of the world's first hostage negotiation team through its most thrilling and challenging cases. Whether it was a bank robbery, a bus hijacking, or a distraught man on a roof holding a baby... Our negotiators said the same thing. Talk to me. And once the talking started, almost always the shooting stopped. It changed policing forever. Wow. Yeah. That's the I need somebody help me, please. Playing again. Uh, yeah, so this this is a, this is a story I've always loved. I mean, uh, um, I, I, you know, I made my living as a writer, kind of a living as a writer, uh, before I went in the academy. And the last story I did 
was on hostage negotiations. So, uh, you know, John Miller was DCPI, the new DCPI, and he was, he's, the, the, you know, he'd been friends with Frank Bowles, who was the first commanding officer of the team, you know, since the 70s. So this was an easy yes for him. And uh, the only problem was, uh, you know, you got to wait for a good job to come up and really good extended, you know, complicated hostage jobs. You know, they're, you know, every couple of months, you know, they might have two in a week. Uh, but I, I wound up writing that story. I really got interested in it. And, uh, you know, I decided to give it a try as, as, a, as a podcast. And uh, the story, you know, nobody had a hostage negotiation team. Nobody had, no department anywhere had a systematic approach or idea how to do this. You know, you got a bank robbery holding hostages. Well, maybe you try and talk or maybe you rush in. And when you do one or switch to the other, it was pretty much, you know, whoever's decision at the team. And it wasn't systematic or anything. You know, sometimes it turned out great. Sometimes it didn't. Uh, but in the early 70s, there were three big incidents, really two, um, that made uh, a chief of ours named Simon Eisdorfer, who was the chief of special operations, decide we really had to come up with something. And the first was the Attica prison riots. That's uh, September 71. The most important thing, though, was the Munich Olympics in, in, in 72, um, because that was an absolute disaster uh, in every way. I mean, 11 Israelis were killed. Um, you know, the, the security, this is the first German Olympics since Berlin in 36, and they wanted to show how, you know, those old days are past. We're, we're an easy, open, modern democracy. So security was embarrassing. I mean, you could, you know, it was like a fence. They wouldn't allow armed cops in, inside because they, they might intimidate people. So, uh, you know, uh, Black September, a Palestinian group, took 11 Israelis hostage, and uh, <clears throat> in the negotiation went on, were on you know, live TV for hours, and then uh, they brought everybody to the airport, and it was a disastrous tactical operation. You know, and let me just uh, stop you for one second. Who was doing the negotiation uh, for... Um... The uh, German, there was... Uh, a mix. There was a, the German interior minister, a policewoman from Munich, did a lot. So of they work. didn't. They didn't really. They weren't trained in hostage negotiation. No, nobody was. Nobody was. The they didn't is, know the rules. They didn't know how to negotiate. They didn't know any of those things. They were. There weren't any rules. And the other thing is that really the other side of that conversation had to have been the Israelis. You know, the Germans were just talking. They couldn't give up anything or guarantee anything or deliver anything. So. Um, you know, there was there wasn't anybody on the other side of the table really. The Germans did a pretty good job stalling and and, and so forth, uh, but the Israelis were never going to make a deal, so that was sort of doomed from the beginning. But the tactical part is you know at least as important as the talk part. You know what you go to if the talk part fails, and the Germans did not have anything like that capacity. They uh, they didn't have a SWAT team or ESU. Uh, whatever special forces they had were not allowed to deploy on German soil. And so, you know, the rescue operation, I mean, they, they sent five cops out when there were the eight, eight hostage takers and, and nine hostages. I mean, why five? They had just regular rifles, no scopes, no night vision. The guys, the cops didn't even have radios. 
you know, so it was it, it, it was disastrous and it ended. I remember, I think it was the broadcaster was Jim McKay. And Jim I remember McKay, his famous was, line was, they're all gone. They're all gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. And, and Simon Eisdorfer, you know, I, the other third one, which was much less important, at least at the time, was the Dog Day Afternoon Bank Robbery, and which was two weeks before Munich. It was in August uh, of 72. And I actually have a, a Life magazine from that fall, I guess it's the October issue. Uh, where it has, you know, it's all about the Olympics, but in that issue, you would think the big tragedy was the American law, American basketball teams lost to the Russians. Right. Like, oh yeah, and the Israelis got killed. And they also had a story about the Dog Day bank robbery called "The Boys in the Bank," uh, and uh, where he they, they said, you know, that the, uh, the the bank robber looked like a young Al Pacino. Oddly enough, that's who would play him. Um, but it was Munich really that made this chief say we got to do something. So there, uh, so we came up with a plan. And again, it's just it, what amazes me is just how accidental it was, uh, because we had a patrolman named Harvey Schlossberg who got his PhD in psychology on the side. Somebody, you know, the, the PC, I guess it was Murphy at the time, was when he was new, was looking through personnel files, and he says, you know, patrolman Schlossberg, PhD. He says, you know, this has got to be a misprint. Oh, really? He's an accident investigations? They said, congratulations, you're the new department. Yeah, leave it to the police department to use your talents effectively, right? A guy with a PhD is working like accident investigation. Well, well, he didn't, he kept, he just, he had a separate job, you know, it's like. Yeah, no, he was happy doing that on his police job, but, you know, the police should use him for his talents, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, Harvey, come up with something. And there wasn't anything in and you know they could find so we just came up with some basic concepts <clears throat> which is you know you contain the situation you delay that's the big insight you know time generally is on our side the more time goes on the less volatile it becomes and you know uh uh and, and you try and talk and try and listen and you know he didn't know how well it would work he figured it, would, it was better than you know winging it which is what everybody had done before then and the second big accidental part was, you know, who's who's going to run it? Uh, and, uh, you know, Frank Bowles was one lieutenant in the uh, detective bureau. Uh, but the training, you see, the guy who was supposed to t- do, do the training, because we had a training program before we had a team. Basically, it was, you know, the fall of 72. And, you know, a lot of our bosses really don't know what ESU can do. They don't know. The difference between hot gas and cold gas. They don't know what you know aviation capacity. They don't know what all the toys do and so forth. Right. It's just it was really more geared on the tactical side. Uh, let's let's show them what we can do and how it can be done. And the, and the small part was a lecture on Harvey giving a lecture on the psychology of this stuff. And Frank, uh, you know, Frank also kind of run the show. But Frank only got there, and Frank became the leader of the team for the next nine years. Hundreds of jobs. Saved, I think, almost 800 hostages. He was, you know, the the amazingly perfect guy for this job. He's just a really nice guy. He's a great talker. He's he's going. Uh, he had a really pretty wide experience in the department before. He worked for the phone company beforehand, so he could fix phones, which is really important when you're trying to when you got communications problems, uh, when you're hooking up, when you're jerry rigging some kind of communication system, you know, from one one side of the door to the other. Uh, and he only got it because the training program was in Floyd Bennett Field, 
And the guy who was supposed to run it was in Rockland County. And he said, hey, Frank, can you, you mind taking this? You live in Queens. You know, and this. <laughs> that's, so, that's so police department, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Typical. He right? lives too far away. You can't yeah, do this yeah, job. Yeah. Hey, you Thomas D'Angelo. Thomas D'Angelo, thank you so much for the four ninety nine Super Chat. Uh, I just saw someone else. Uh, Anthony Candela, thank you, buddy, for the $10 Super Sticker. Uh, thank everyone, all you guys that support us. We have uh, Ed Conlon on tonight, uh, great author, best-selling author of Blue Blood, not Blue Bloods as the TV show. And I, I heard he got a seven, uh, seven-figure advance for it. So when we go out drinking, Here we go. He's talking about money. <laughs> he's paying the bar tab. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We can't well, go back to parties, unfortunately. That's, that's long gone. Yeah, there's no much right. There's, there's, that, that place is long gone. Um you know, it, one of the things that I, I was never a hostage negotiator, but as cops, we all learn how to de-escalate situations. And if you don't, you'll never be a good cop. That is part of being a good cop is to learn how, with your voice, to de-escalate a situation, you know. And that's part of hostage negotiation, I'm sure. And as well as it is to, you know, Take as much time as you need to defuse the situation. But one of the things I find the most interesting, and I was never a hostage negotiator, is the steadfast rules that you can't violate as a hostage negotiator. And as I listened to, I listened to your first episode, uh, which of course was the hostage situation at Attica State Prison, which was a, another disaster. And some of the the steadfast rules, and what I you know like you talk about it, and you know it a hell of a lot more than I do. But it's interesting, like you know, they kept wanting to bring Nelson Rockefeller to Attica, and that is a rule. No, you don't bring okay. the head guy there, yeah. Because then you have no one to run the uh the stuff up to, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And and like I said, you 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 don't want to tell people no, you know, not after you know. I mean, you want to. You're going to tell people no, but it shouldn't be confrontational. It shouldn't be personal. A lot of times you say, let me see if we can do that. Uh, when you, uh, now my boss is like, ah, he's a dick. I wish I could, you know, let me do that. It it, form, it helps form a bond between you and, 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 the, and the subject. And it deflects responsibility from the saying no, which has to be said a lot of times. Uh, but it, it was it, with Rockefeller, what they needed, as I said, the podcast, they did not need Rockefeller there. They needed time, which only Rockefeller could have given them. Uh, but you don't, that's, uh, the, the, there's not a lot of really strict rules. You don't exchange hostages. You know, you don't say, oh, I'll come in, just let somebody, right. uh, which one guy, one guy did. Uh, uh, <laughs> before we had a program, uh, Richard Condon, who was a detective, became a police, he was police commissioner in the early 80s, just for like a pretty short time. Then he went on to, uh, um, I think school. He was first dep for a while. He was first yeah, dep. He was, yeah. yeah. Then he so, went to the uh, the head of uh, uh, the Board of Education Investigations. Right. Yeah. Well, he yeah. was a detective in the early 70s, and there was uh, 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 something in federal court, you know, this kind of penny ante bankruptcy guy, you know, had a judgment of like 250 bucks go against him. He went in there with a gun. And, uh, you know, grabbed a, a cleaning lady and held her hostage. So, again, this is before we had the rules. Uh, ESU guy grabs a set of black robes, you know, puts them on, introduces himself as a judge. 
And then he says, yeah, like, I get, we got, uh, you know, Attorney Condon here, who's with the Civil Liberties Union, whatever, and so he's happy to talk to you if, if you if you get rid of the cleaning lady. And, uh, you know, Condon uh, pulled a gun out of his sock and shot the guy. You know? So <laughs> <laughs> if, if you don't, we don't pretend. We don't, we don't kind of do that kind of, even though it worked, there's, we don't do that stuff anymore. We don't pretend to be priests or anything like that. Uh, and you don't, you don't, you, you don't give weapons. You don't give drugs. Um, you you might give somebody a drink. And in fact, I think they gave a lot more drinks in the seventies when this started, you know, uh, than they do now. But you know, one one early job, you got Frank Bowles, the commanding officer, has it's a domestic thing. He and the other guy are rolling a bottle of vodka back and forth, you know, in a basement, you know, doing shots and and uh, uh, making friends. Um, but yeah, you, beyond that, um, you know. Those are the real hard and fast ones. You know, we're using intermediaries. That's something that there, there's a lot of trial and error. You know, every every person, every cop's instinct is like, okay, this guy's you know, going nuts. Oh, let's find his mom. Let's find his best friend. Let's find his whatever. They can talk to him. Well, you don't know that, you know. You might have a big problem with mom or, you know, his wife or his best friend. And you don't, you, you it can make the situation a lot more volatile. They use intermediaries sometimes. You really try and vet them closely. But if you're going to get to that point, it's usually a sign that the uh, situation isn't going well. You know? Right, right, right. And I got a question for you about Dog Day Afternoon. It seemed like uh, the way it played out, I was actually, I was about uh, 12, 13 years old or whatever it was, uh, 10, 11, whatever. I was actually there. I was across the street. But it seems like they kind of followed the, the pattern that was developed after Dog Day Afternoon went down because they contained, they did the negotiation, give us a uh, give us a hostage, they brought them food and stuff. The one thing I didn't agree with, obviously, was was taking them off to the airport, I guess, but the, the, it went down, it, it wound up working that, out. That, that's, they, they used to, that was a part of the original plan, the training, phase one, you're at the scene, phase two, you move, phase three, you set up again with ESU, containing the situation, then you're out of perimeter, negotiators, all that stuff. You know, that's what happened in Munich. You know, you did have to move locations, that's what happened in Dog Day. We don't do it anymore. It really didn't happen very often. And uh, there was a situation which I couldn't find, but there was one situation right before then where it did work. They didn't know how many hostages there were. They didn't know how many perps. They didn't know who was hurt. When they agreed to go from one place to another, they got a lot of intel and they could see what they were dealing with. Mostly it's a bad idea. <clears throat> but Dog Day is a is a, a great movie. It's very, very close to... The reality of the situation in episode three i have uh, i talked to agent murphy you know who is the guy who you know takes them on that ride to the airport and uh you know um it, it, afterwards he you know he said yeah we would never we would never move like we did before we switched pd started it was a handover uh, to the FBI about halfway through, um, so that's dumb. If you're if if, if you're not, if you, you you just don't switch. If you can switch negotiators, if there's a, a problem between the two of them, uh, but it's really it, that's you know was not a bad job. I mean, one guy one bad guy got killed. Um, it's a really weird job, you know. So I don't even know what they, you know, what, what they could make sense of it. Um, it. 
it became really important though when it became a movie because you know so the the the, the job was august 72 the movie was september october 75 it seemed like everybody who took hostages after that saw the movie yeah and, and every hostage negotiator had to spend a lot of time convincing the guy no it's not going to end like it did in dog day you know yeah <laughs> a lot and nobody has to die in the end so it you know kind of it also like you know the the hero was not the cop or the negotiator the hero was you know al pacino the bad guy uh you know, someone in the chat wants to know if uh, any of us were around for the french connection yeah, and yes, and Teddy Roosevelt was the police commissioner. <laughs> I think the French Connection was in the 70s, right? Well, the movie yeah. was in the 70s. The case was 60, 61. Oh, okay, so the yeah, uh, early 60s. Yeah, uh, there's your answer. <laughs> I was born in 60, by the way. Yeah, so <laughs> I was born in 56, so I was four. So, uh, And I got a quick question about uh, the hostage negotiation, the whole way that it goes down. Now, would a suicide, let's say a person is threatening to jump off a bridge or a building or something like that, would you deploy the same tactics? Would you say, I think you would probably say to the same script. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think there's any any variation in how you connect with someone. It, it's, it, you know, you're just trying to slow them down. Uh, and the psychology isn't, it's, you know, I, I have a, maybe more than I should have, of Harvey Schlossberg's, you know, psychology lecture, lectures. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you're dealing with frustration, you're dealing with conflict, you're dealing with anxiety. You know, when people think the weird thing is that people think they're solving a problem when they're taking a hostage. They don't know, you know, it's like, oh, I'm stuck. This will get me out. No, you're making it much, much worse. You know, but they think they're solving a problem and then they think they can't do anything else aside from, you know, shoot or themselves or somebody else. But you when you when you lower the anxiety and calm things down, you say, no, there is another way to go here yeah you know you, you robbed the bank but you didn't kill anybody or whatever you you can get them most many times you know unless people are absolutely you know psychotic or you know politically you know very very you know, suicide bombers or whatever you're you're going to be able to reach a lot of people you know absolutely um, but some suicides and 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 so when you're suicidal versus homicidal they the approach is the same in in, in Harvey's original view of things. I don't know if it's changed since then. I'm going to play, I want to put this on the screen and play a little bit of this. Welcome to Talk to Me, a podcast series about the high stakes real cases, big and small, of the NYPD's hostage negotiation team, which was the first of its kind in the world. Their motto was Talk to Me, and their groundbreaking work changed policing forever. You might remember some of the stories we're about to tell you from the news. If not, you'll quickly see why they made headlines. I'm Edward Conlon. I wrote this series. All right, here we go. We don't. Well, I want to just tease people. That's the that's episode number one, which you you talk a lot about the uh, the Attica riots. Uh, John Miller, who was a first deputy commissioner of. Um, Intelligence, I think it was, right? Uh, well, he started as DCPI, then he left, and then he came back, and he was intel and counterterrorism, which were two jobs that he put together. And then for the last year, he was also DCPI again. So he and uh, we all, we all know him as a one of the stars of 2020 with Barbara Walters, 
a lot of years ago. In fact, he was famous for interviewing John Gotti and, of course, Osama bin Laden. And uh, good guy. I, I mean, he when I was teaching college, he came uh, to the college I was teaching at and spoke. He's a great speaker. I'm always amazed that pe when people can speak for prolonged periods of time without any notes whatsoever. And he, he can do that like it's... Uh, yeah. Well, as a broadcaster, you learn how to do that. And yeah. He's great at that. You know? He's a natural. But, a, you know, a broadcaster can't talk, you know, 15 minutes straight on a complicated subject and, and really know, you know, most, mostly they can't improvise coherent thoughts that for that extended period of time. I, I can't, you know. Well, yeah, well, it's it's a talent that you learn from, from doing it, you know, you from uh, – you know, well, you see when they go live on the air and they have no script and they just got to keep keep talking. It's not so easy to do. Well, they always got the earpiece anyway, you know, and you can keep the things flowing. But, you know, he just knows what he's doing. He's a natural, John Miller. I I, I, I met him one time in at the scene of a homicide when uh, a gangster was killed, uh, Nicky Black, and uh, briefly met him. But I always liked him. Like you said, Bill, he... I mean, how many guys got John Gotti to open up and, and even say hello to them, you know? And then he interviewed Osama bin Laden, I mean, in a cave in Afghanistan. I mean, that's just a tremendous accomplishment. And uh, you could see he's a, a decent guy. He's a good guy and obviously a great speaker. Well, he, you know, he, he kind of jumped Gotti, you know, in the street. And he got mad. He said, why are you doing this? And he says, come on, I got a job for you. You, could, you know, talk yeah. to me. Why don't we to work out something? And they did all these nice walk and talk interviews. But you know, even that. Sammy the Bull gave him the debt stand. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Years ago, I went with a, a, another couple and my, my my wife. I don't know if I was married at the time. Uh, there's a restaurant on Barrow Street in the West Village called One If By Land, Two If By Sea. It's a famous restaurant. Yeah, famous yeah. For Beef Wellington, ambiance, unbelievable uh, uh, place to go and. As we were leaving, I forget what year this was. It was probably like 1988 uh, or 89. And as we're leaving at the main table where it wanted to be seen was Gotti. And yeah. it, it was uh, it was Gumara night, you know. So there were him and three guys, and they were all out with their Gumas. And and my friend was like, why don't you take a picture? And I go, I'm a, fuck, I'm a cop, you know? What do you want to take a picture? That's not going to do good for my career, take a picture with Gotti, you know? <laughs> but yeah. I, I just thought I'd tell that story. That wouldn't fly too good. But Beef yeah. Wellington, I like that. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, well, I, I, I've yeah, never been there. To, I try it. Have you been to that restaurant? No, I remember hearing about it. Me too. It. I've never been, but I heard a lot about it. I remember Eddie Hartnett years ago was getting engaged, and he uh, he was he was the ex order two four when I was there, and he was like, "I goes, I'm going to engage you. Any you have any suggestions for restaurants?" And I recommended that restaurant to. Him. I don't know if he went or not, but uh, he he mentioned it to me years later. Oh yeah, I went. <laughs> he said he went there. I don't know if he was just trying to appease me, but uh, folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and you can support us that way. We also have a YouTube channel memberships with five, count them, five different levels, and you can support us. You see the folks in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family, and we appreciate them very much. And we also have... Ed Murray, uh, excuse me, Ed Murray, Joe Murray, who is a uh, 
a big contributor to us. And this is, uh, Phil, you want to read this? Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Good job, Phil. You know, Ed, I wanted to say, like, a lot of people get spoiled with the whole YouTube thing. And, like, because all of our podcasts are both audio and, and visual. And I I love listening to your podcast. It's like the old days of, uh, of radio, you know. But people these days are so spoiled, though. Where's the pictures? Yeah. <laughs> a couple of people in the chat were like, where's the pictures? You know, I said that earlier today, too, after listening yeah. to it. Well, that's, you know, it just worked. It worked for me it worked for this podcast, especially. I mean, I like, you know, I'm, I'd rather read a script. I'm, you know, not a natural interviewer. John, not a, I'm not John Miller. Uh, you know, so I'm a lot of, I'm, uh, and what would you, how would you, you know, you know, there'd be a lot of that if it was just a recorded interview. Sure. And with Frank Bowles, a uh, great man is 92 years old. Wow. He is a phenomenal storyteller. He's been, you know, as you can imagine, as a negotiator, he's a great talker, but he's beyond that. He's, you know, he's like an MC type. I mean, he's MC, you know, Stoyman Association and detective things and so forth. Um, but, and he's, so he's given a thousand speeches and, and he's given a, 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 a thousand press conferences too. And he always wants to mention like everybody who's there. And it's like, let's not forget Danny St. John. For yeah, yeah. And he doesn't remember the third guy anymore. You know, so he gets frustrated. Um, now I don't need the third guy. I'm not doing an after dinner speech. I'm not, I don't. I don't want to thank anybody. I'm, I want to tell the story. Uh, but since it's just audio, it doesn't matter. You know, if it was if it was video and a picture, you you it, you'd have to cut and be choppy and so forth. Audio was the just pure audio was the great way to go with this. Yeah. No. It's it, it, look. It's still very interesting uh, to hear this, and you know. Cops are great natural. Most cops are, 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 are great storytellers. You know, we all practice the, uh, the war stories in the bar over a few Coronas or whatever your drink of choice is. And uh, as as the Coronas flow, so do the uh, the size of the stories, right? <laughs> don't, don't, don't the Irish call that the Blarney? <laughs> right? Crack, too. When I tell a story, That's I right. feel like, it, for me, if it's a, you know, something that I did, I'm just replaying it in my head and telling it. And there's definitely an art to telling the stories though. A lot of, a lot of people uh, are good storytellers and some maybe not so good, but uh, you know, if you're telling a story that you've been through or if you did enough research on it to retell that story, I think is, uh, is, you know, is, is pretty effortless, you know? Yeah. Well, when, and when people are telling it as opposed to writing it, it's just a different, uh, uh, I remember Sonny Grasso busting my balls once saying, you did what? You did, you get how much money? To, what did you do? I got the French Connection case. I, you know, I was like, I know, I regular, I have a completely ordinary, you know, good cop career. I have a South Bronx perspective. I just tell them, I just know how to write, you know? I know how to, that's the only difference between me and, you know, thousands of other cops. 
you know, I can put it, so many people who are, you know, legendary cops who would have you spellbound for hours on a bar, you know, write a book and it's like reading a bunch of DD5s, you know, it's just, right, doesn't, Boring. It doesn't translate, you know, but I, you know, I can write and that's why, you know, that's a, you know, so when Ed, when you think about the story of the French Connection, it was no better story than a million other stories you've heard. In fact, you know, when you think of 110 pounds of heroin, you're like, shit, guys are making that in car stops in the 4-4. You know what I mean? It, it's actually, you know, it, it actually, to me, it is, I think, pretty amazing because it, it was just, you know, uh, Eddie Egan and Sonny, you know, were, you know, kind of, you know, I don't know, probably 36 hours. Uh, you know, on, on something, and I, you know, I think was a, uh, Roger Maris had some big game, and then they're just kind of pumped up, and they decided to go to the Copacabana, and Sonny's always trying to say, what's Eddie, can we go home, you know, and Eddie notices a bunch of wise guys in the corner, and the kind of big shots are kowtowing to this guy who he doesn't know, and he Eddie just reads this in the room, like, what the hell is going on here, he says, we're following this guy. And so it makes Sonny stay up and they, you know, four in the morning, they, they, they uh, track him back to this little dingy little luncheonette in Brooklyn. And they're like, who, who is this guy? He's a nobody. Why are all the big shots kissing his ass? And uh, they set up a wiretap. But ultimately they, they find out he's the nephew of Angelo Tuminaro, who was a major heroin guy. So, I mean, it really was a spectacular, I mean, I think a pretty impressive investigation. I mean, the numbers, you know, 122 pounds is like, yeah, you know, kilos and tons and stuff like that. Are, right, right. Yeah, I, I got one of my best lines from that movie. I was used to say it as a joke. Uh, and when he's following the frog on the subway and the guy notices him and he, go, he picks up the phone and goes, I don't care how many bartenders are out sick. I ain't working that joint. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> That's a great movie, boy. That's a great movie. You know, some I of those old movies the to see that movie. And that movie really it was filmed in my neighborhood. It inspired me to become a cop. I always wanted to just be a detective after watching that movie. And uh I thought it was just great. It was really, really I mean, you know, some it, of those, it comes from a hunch. He he put the whole case together on a hunch based on whatever. Yeah, that yeah. had nothing. nothing. You know, that that that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, but you know, some of those old movies, though, when you watch them now, they're so dated. Like, if you watch Serpico, it's ab absolutely laughable. It's just so dated, you know. Uh, it just doesn't make all that much sense, you know. You move, I'll put one in you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's also like, you know, the cool hippie cop versus, you know, the the old, you know, Joe Lunchbox. Square. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Living down in the West Village, he has the little sheep dog. You know, you love a man's garden. You you love the man. <laughs> I'm remembering all these lines from these movies. My God, I I sound like Billy Dunn. You know, Billy Dunn has that. Uh, yeah, he has that photographic memory. He remembers everything. You know. So so Ed, what after um this season of Talk to Me? What is the next topic for the podcast? You know, I I. I'm up to, you know, we got 26 episodes. I'm up to 1977. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, so it, this is all Frank, this this uh, this season. You know, we go on to some great people. Bob Loudon took over the team after after Frank. Uh, you know, Hugh McGowan had the team when I, you know, when I went out on that job in the beginning of 95, right before I went to the academy. 
uh, Jack Cambria, you know, who ran the team. Jack, for Jack's been on the show a bunch of times. What a, great, what a great guy. What a great yeah. guy, you know. Good people. Gentlemen, yeah. Gentleman uh, Jack. If, if, if they want me to keep on doing this stuff, it's, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm not going to run out of stories with the, with the, the hostage stuff, you know. Or where we go, I don't know. It's, I, I try not to make. Hey, yeah, you want to write my life story? Let's take me to one of my land. I'll meet you at the bar. Bring your platinum American Express card. <laughs> oh, you'll need it there. From I'll be talking for about six or eight hours. <laughs> Let's start. There I was in Levittown. <laughs> Levittown Red Devils. I was twelve years old, <laughs> playing against the Massapequa Mustangs. <laughs> Hey, it's a lot of laughs, right? Yep. Cops yeah. get together. There's a lot of laughs if if that's the only thing. Um, Ed, anything you want to plug? We're at an hour and four minutes. I don't want to keep you any longer, uh, even though I, we could go on forever. But do uh, you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, no. This I'm I'm plugging it. This is this is the show. This is this is the this is the story. You know. Uh, now, how how do uh, my listeners get to listen to uh, your podcast? Uh, you. Uh, on your phone, like I told you, you know, there's like a uh, like a little purple button. That's the podcast app. Uh -huh. um, that's how most people will get it. You can you can Google. It's the distributor. It's called Podcast One. If you Google, talk to me. NYPD hostage Conlon. It took a little bit more searching, but it, it just came you know, out. Ed, I I just answered my own question. I just put it in the chat. www podcast1.com slash pd talk to me slash okay. talk to me I, I found it when you gave me such bullshit directions how to find your podcast <laughs> i used my investigative skills and found the damn thing that's why you're a detective sergeant <laughs> that's right. detective sergeant the supreme commander found podcast one <laughs> i'm not a technical guy when i you know i started interviewing frank you know in uh february 2020 right before the pandemic when he was a spry youth of 89 years old you know and i obviously had a lot more to talk to him about you know when things calmed down a little bit he, he, he his son said you know nobody's meeting so we had to figure out zoom frank was a hell of a lot better than i was you know frank yeah. was, was talking me through push this button and do that whatever you know this his own old experience as a as a telephone guy when I when we first started using this, we were using Zoom too, and we switched over to uh, what we're using now, which is Streamyard. And I don't want to say why we did that because I might get assassinated by a bunch of Chinese uh, <laughs> by a bunch of Chinese secret agents will come and whack me on the street for saying it, you know. But uh, Streamyard is more efficient. It's better sound. It's uh, it's it's just a better system. I've used Zoom on a couple of different conference calls, and this is way better, way better. Yeah, absolutely. My own mic, does that, it might be the, uh, I don't know if it's a computer mic or, or whatever. Yeah, uh, sometimes we, that's one of the problems is if you have someone um, that's not that computer literate or doesn't have a good mic or anything, you can have some tremendous feedback and stuff, but uh I'm sure our audience doesn't give a shit about this. So. <laughs> but Ed, it's been it's been wonderful. I know we've spoken before, and uh, you have a, a blank check to come on the show whenever you would like to come on the show. Uh, 
you want to start a book on Phil and you can go to me afterwards. I don't know. We'll, 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 see, we'll see what happens. But uh, it's, uh, you know, and then the fact that you know Billy Dunn, my God, one of my favorite uh, detectives. What a great guy and what a great detective. Bill, you have any last words? Final words will be that I uh, so happy that you came on tonight, Ed. I watched, oh, I didn't watch. I listened to the uh, first uh, episode of the podcast. Uh, John Miller always liked listening to him. Uh, it was pretty informative. I think a lot of the um, uh, stuff that you guys put together or, or whoever created the hostage negotiation team, it turns out it's really just a lot of common sense, slow things down. Let's talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the ground rules make a lot of sense. You know, you don't want to, uh, have the, the chief of detectives talking to the guy, obviously. So that way, you know, he's going to make the decisions or the police commission. It all makes sense to me, but very, very interesting. And I think that the real crime community would definitely, uh, enjoy listening to this podcast. So good luck with it. And, uh, it was a pleasure to meet you and uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you guys. And we'll, we'll talk again. And would you just uh, hang out for about a couple minutes after, uh, would you, I want to talk to you off the air for a second. Yeah, sure. Okay. So just ain't enough